You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring the August 2022 issue of the Journal. Today I'm going to focus on six feature articles, and our CE feature for the month is an education piece about identifying alternative clinical experiences for students during the pandemic. And later in this podcast, you'll hear a short interview with the lead author of that feature, that's uh, Dr. Christina Bricker. There are several things in this issue that you may be interested in this month. I'm going to summarize a few of the other features for you before we get to that short interview, but there are a number of things in this issue that you may be interested in. There's an editorial by Dr. Giovanna Gordon about the importance of faculty for nurse practitioners engaging in clinical practice. There's also a fellow speak column about nurse practitioners serving in public office. And then there's a genomics column by Beth Huer and Diane Seibert about specific mitochondrial disorders. And then there are also some QI reports and clinical and case studies in this issue of the journal. First, I'd like to mention a systematic review, and this is by April Watkins and colleagues. And the title of this one is Telemedicine Practices in Adult Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. So these authors conducted a systematic review to describe atrial fibrillation telehealth education treatment programs. And these are programs that are unrelated to post-ablation or early detection, but other types of atrial fibrillation telehealth education treatment programs. And they found that really very little literature exists on these programs. We probably need a lot more research on them. There were three studies that met inclusion criteria, and they did find some themes emerging. And one was that atrial fibrillation requires specialty care, and it's difficult to obtain that care. The second theme was that comprehensive atrial fibrillation education should include a broad array of things such as overview of the condition, management options, stroke prevention, and symptom management. And then the third theme that emerged was that telemedicine is effective for diagnosing and managing atrial fibrillation. And so the authors found that telemedicine clinics for atrial fib represent an emerging form of clinically important healthcare delivery, and the clinics can potentially decrease wait time for specialty care access, reduce unnecessary emergency department visits, reduce stroke risk, and increase guideline adherence. And nurse practitioners are well-suited to create and lead telemedicine atrial fib clinics with relevant clinical expertise and collaborative skills. Our second feature this month is by Kim Van Slingerland and colleagues, and this is a quantitative research piece, and it's titled Patient Perceived Needs and Experiences of Person-Centered Care in Patients with Inflammatory Arthritis. And the purpose of this study was to explore the patient-perceived levels and needs for care in inflammatory arthritis. And these are patients who visited a nurse practitioner at an outpatient clinic of an academic hospital. This study was conducted in the Netherlands. And so the methodology was a cross-sectional study that used uh, several different instruments that were previously tested to measure the disease and patient perception. And the results included a finding that most of the patients had well-controlled disease, over 86% of the patients. And the patient scores on the measurement instruments varied in terms of their disease problems and disease complications. The most problems were experienced in the life areas of fatigue, 
fatigue with over 37% of patients and pain with over 35% of patients having ongoing problems in those areas. These were also the life areas that were most often addressed at consultation, fortunately. The life areas that gave problems that were least addressed during consultation were intimate relationships and sexuality with over 66% not addressed and also completing household chores with almost 59% of patients having problems in that area and that wasn't addressed very much on consultation. So the conclusions were that despite an overall high level of patient-perceived person-centered care delivered by the nurse practitioners, patients with low disease activity frequently did report problems in life areas that were not addressed. Implications for practice include implementing a self-management web area for patients and changing the focus of consultations to help accommodate other individual patient needs. Our third feature this month is a quantitative research study by Deborah Dillon McDonald and Stephen Walsh. It's titled Predictors of Older Adults' Chronic Pain in the Context of Opioid Adverse Drug Events. The purpose of this study was to describe demographic and pain self-management factors that were predictive of chronic pain in the context of opioid adverse drug events, or ADEs, reported for a cohort of older adults within the same year. So the design for this study was a post-hoc analysis of over 9,000 cases of adults aged 65 years and older from the 2019 National Health Interview Survey that reported chronic pain and 380 cases aged 65 and older with opioid adverse events reported to the Food and Drug Administration Adverse Event Reporting System during the second quarter of 2019. Results were that less than a baccalaureate education level increased the odds of chronic pain by 28%, while lower income minimally increased the odds. Male gender increased the odds of chronic pain reports by 12%. Increased age minimally increased the odds for chronic pain. Use of opioids, other pain treatments, complementary treatments, and antidepressants were all associated with increased odds of chronic pain. The Food and Drug Administration Adverse Event Reporting System opioid adverse drug events range from pruritus to death, with death identified in 16 or 4.2% of cases. Misuse, abuse, or dependence was documented in 1.8% of cases. And the conclusions of the authors were that less educated older adults may be particularly at risk of chronic pain and should be routinely assessed and prescribed safe and efficacious pain self-management as needed. Some men may need additional support to use pain treatments. Our next feature this month is a qualitative research piece and it's titled First Year Experience of Transitioning from Registered Nurse to Nurse Practitioner. This is a very popular and needed topic. And this is by Jufen Ching and colleagues, and this study was conducted in Taiwan. The purpose of this study was to explore the nature of nurse practitioners' work experiences during the first year of transition from registered nurse to nurse practitioner. The methodology employed by the authors was a qualitative study based on Husserl's phenomenological methodology. A purposive sample of 16 first-year nurse practitioners was recruited. Data were collected through in-depth interviews and analyzed by thematic content analysis. The approaches of Lincoln and Guba were applied to improve the validity of the study. Results showed that the first-year experience of transitioning from registered nurse to nurse practitioner fell into two overarching themes, challenge and adjustment. The challenge consisted of five sub-themes, facing the expectation reality gap, managing others' expectations, striving to acquire professional skills, handling situational variability, and bearing emotional burdens. The adjustment theme included five sub-themes, and those were finding resources, gaining experiences, building relationships, 
relieving stress, and overcoming obstacles. Implications for practice were that novice nurse practitioners face many challenges as they adjust to a new role during their first year on the job. New nurse practitioners develop coping strategies to help themselves adjust to their work, and they also gradually gain new resources and experiences to help them stay positive in stressful situations and restore a work-life balance. The challenges of transitioning from a registered nurse to a nurse practitioner cannot be overlooked. Novice nurse practitioners need appropriate support measures to adapt to advanced practice roles. A final article that I'd like to feature before our interview this month is a quantitative research piece by Kristen Geely and John Gonzalez, and it's titled Meeting the Need for Nurse Practitioner Clinicals, a Survey of Practitioners. This study describes nurse practitioners' clinical experiences as students and their current practice as NP preceptors. The authors conducted a descriptive study using a 38-item web-based survey. This study was conducted in Texas and a total of 334 nurse practitioners responded. 58% had been nurse practitioners for 10 or fewer years, and over 50% had been in their current position for less than five years. A plurality of respondents stated that they had been required to find their own clinical placements, 46%. The most common challenge in obtaining clinical placements was finding preceptors. Nurse practitioners reported excellent clinical experiences as students and believed that they were generally well prepared for the nurse practitioner role and to care for their specialty patient population upon graduation. 60% of respondents reported not currently precepting in their job as a nurse practitioner, and of those, 37% had not been asked to precept. Now, this is an interesting finding to me because it's very consistent with the study we published not long ago by Dr. DeClerc showing the same thing, that people are not being asked to precept students. And 32.8% reported that employers did restrict their ability to precept to some extent. Family nurse practitioners were the least likely to precept. Conclusions were that nurse practitioners report positive clinical experiences that prepare them for nurse practitioner careers. Multiple opportunities exist to enlist additional nurse practitioners as preceptors for students. So implications are that there is capacity within the current workforce to meet clinical education needs of nurse practitioner students. Future work should examine best practices to engage nurse practitioners who are not preceptors. As policies change in nurse practitioner education, research should examine the implications of the preparation for nurse practitioner roles at the time of graduation, as well as organizational outcomes and the impact on quality of care. Our guest today is Dr. Christina Bricker. Dr. Bricker is Assistant Dean of Graduate Clinical Programs and Associate Professor at the University of South Florida College of Nursing. She and her colleagues authored this month's CE feature in the journal, and it's titled Pandemic Response, the Identification of Alternative Clinical Hours to Ensure Advanced Practice Nursing Students Meet Program Requirements. In the article, the authors describe how they tracked and analyzed their use of alternative clinical practice experiences for advanced practice nursing students actively enrolled during the first semester of the pandemic. Data included input from advanced practice nursing students in family, pediatric, primary care, adult gerontology primary care, adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner concentrations, and nursing education, doctor of nursing practice, and nurse anesthesia programs. A total of 569 advanced practice nursing students participated in 15 distinct alternative clinical activities, and we are here to talk about their findings. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I was wondering if you could just kind of start by describing the advanced practice nursing program at USF. I know it's a big school and you have a lot of students. How many concentrations do you offer? And with regard to clinical placements, what is the role of faculty in designing the clinical experiences? 
Here at the college, we have two overarching graduate clinical programs, um, master's and DNP. And within those, we have five APRN concentrations and then the nursing education concentration. Um, and you already named the family nurse practitioner, pediatric primary care, adult geroacute acute care, um, adult gero primary care, and nursing anesthesia are the five APRN concentrations. Um, and for clinical site placement, we, we have a clinical affairs department. They identify clinical sites all over the state for us. Um, and that we have concentration directors who follow the clinical experiences of the students within their concentration. Um, most of them use like an Excel spreadsheet um, and they have a list of their students and clinical experiences that they've, that they've obtained during their program. Um, so the concentration directors will meet with the clinical affairs team, review available clinical sites and place students at each available clinical site as appropriate uh, for their needs. That sounds like a good plan with a lot of thought that goes into it among a lot of people. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Now, can you just spend a couple of minutes briefly summarizing the major findings that you did see in your analysis of the alternative clinical experiences that were designed and located for the students? Well, as you said, our sample consisted of over 500 graduate nursing students in our college. They completed over 200 virtual simulations all combined um, and over 300 virtual case studies, continuing education activities, and faculty developed uh, simulated case studies. Um, you know, we had to quickly transition to online. We used for our OSCE exams, the objective structured clinical exam, um, we transitioned them to telehealth quickly during the pandemic. Uh, and so faculty developed many case studies, virtual case studies that were used for OSCEs. And then uh, students could also use those for alternative clinical hours if they chose to, if they were not enrolled in the courses that required the OSCEs. And I noticed that you included a table listing some of the alternative clinical activities that were used. And I thought that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you noticed any particularly creative choices of these alternative hours that you think other schools really might want to consider. Yes, it's really a long list. You know, faculty identified many of them and students even found some of them for us. They would report to faculty some that they found. Um, so we employed students a little bit to help us identify them. It's really hard to choose. Um, they, they were all so good. I think the ones that we found the most helpful, um, at least for the family nurse practitioner and pediatric students, were the ones that included some pediatric cases. Pediatric sites are the most difficult to find for us, and I've heard others um, say the same. So we really focused on uh, pediatric case study availability, um, and I, so I would check those out um, for anyone who needs that. Great. Thank you. It is a given that the pandemic forced all faculty in the health sciences to rapidly pivot and somehow provide all these necessary clinical experiences and clinical education via other modalities. And of course, the alternative was to just simply not graduate thousands and thousands of students. So this involved nurses, physicians, pharmacists, therapists, and, and lots of others, as we all recognize now. So looking at your school, what, what do you predict will be the long-term impact of these choices in terms of transforming education in general? And also, could you kind of follow that with, do you have any outcomes uh, related to certification pass rates, clinical performance reports after graduation, or any other 
longer term indicators that you're following? Yes, of course, our first our first emphasis is obtaining the required number of direct hours uh, by our crediting bodies, you know, and, and going above uh, the minimum required direct hours. But above that, these alternative clinical hours are really innovative. They help students meet course objectives, program objectives, can augment the clinical experiences that students are able to obtain. Um, clinical sites are still difficult. The pandemic uh, is, is not over yet, unfortunately. Um, this, this may be our new norm. So these alternative clinical experiences may be here to stay. We may incorporate them from now on in our, in our courses. We have wonderful outcomes to report. I'm happy to say all students finished on time. This uh, was the last anesthesia cohort that finished a master's program with us. We've transitioned to DNP for nurse anesthesia now, but that cohort graduated December of 2020, and they all uh, reported 100% employment before graduation. They all had jobs by the time they graduated. The pass rate um, for their exam was 100% for the first time, first first attempt. Our adult zero primary care students um, also had a 100% first-time pass rate for their concentration exam. The family nurse practitioner graduates were um, in the high 90s for their first-time pass rate, and our other concentrations were also very high. All of our students had employment. Uh, obtained employment within a year. And again, nursing anesthesia all had employment before graduation even. So our outcomes have been very good. We're very happy with that. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that's working out for you. And I agree with your comment about this potentially being kind of the new normal. I, I think there's benefits of this at any rate with more structured evaluation potentially of students being able to add a little bit more of that in and, and not just relying on what they're getting at the clinical side and what they are able to be exposed to during whatever period of time they're there. Yeah, good points. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This is an exciting study. I was very happy to see it and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of our listeners and be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Thank you.